This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to Inside Politics. We are in the middle of a very busy day here in Washington. We're standing by for President Biden to speak on the dire situation in Congress if it fails to approve more money for Ukraine. An agreement on Capitol Hill is looking quite grim right now as the White House has already been warning about the dangerous stakes for the U.S. Now the president is going to weigh in. And lawmakers, it's very up in the air whether or not they are going to act. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is at the White House. Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill. Uh, Priscilla, I want to start with you. What are you hearing about what the president will say? Well, the president is going to take an urgent tone on passing this supplemental request. Recall, Dana, that when they introduced this request in October, the president addressed the nation. He's also gone to the pages of The Washington Post to express how important it is that this is passed. And the resounding message from the president has been that this supplemental request in aid to Ukraine and to Israel is not just about helping uh, these countries abroad, but it goes directly to the national security of the United States. And that is likely what he is going to say today. Now, just to remind viewers, this is a $105 billion supplemental request. It includes $61 billion in aid to Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, and $14 billion for border security, among other asks. But it is the part about border security and border policy where this has hit a snag. Republicans have wanted robust policy changes to pass this supplemental. Now, this, of course, comes at a delicate time for the White House, which is seeing high encounters on the U.S.-Mexico border. And what the White House has said is that this supplemental request includes funds to assist with that and that they have also tried to pass policies to stem the flow. But of course, all of this just taking on added urgency by the end of this month. Thank you so much, Priscilla, for that reporting. Let's pick the story up on Capitol Hill, where the action or maybe inaction is right now. Manu, uh, what are you hearing today from your sources, from lawmakers, about whether there's been any movement at all? Prospects, Dana, for passage of this massive aid, aid package are as grim as ever. Many fear that Ukraine aid simply will not pass in this Congress and that there could lead to the collapse of that country in its war against Russia and with it, Israel funding as well. Amid this dispute over border security, border policies, and demands by Republicans to change the laws to deal with the migrant crisis at the border, those proposed changes are a bridge too far for Senate Democrats and they are saying that they will not accept it. Now, the concern is going to be what will happen after the Senate Republicans later this afternoon plan to block a measure to actually fund Ukraine, fund Israel, provide money for border security, but does not institute those changes, the policy changes that they have been demanding. But Republicans I talked to, even the ones who are staunch supporters of Ukraine, says that say that blocking this measure will send a message to the administration that it is time to cut a deal to their liking on the border. We have to be concerned with our safety at home and our, we are not safe and sound and it's getting worse. This is a chronic situation that we have to fix. We've told the, uh, the Democrats in the very beginning, Ukraine aid needs to be paired with a provision to stop the flood at the border. The vote will just indicate, yeah, we're, we're serious. We meant what we said, we said what we meant. But even if there was a deal on immigration, which is far, far away, getting a bill through Congress would still be enormously challenging because of the divisions between the House and the Senate on how to proceed. The Senate, the House Speaker, Mike Johnson, has made clear he wants to move 
Israel aid first and not Ukraine aid. Democrats and the White House want to move it all together. The Speaker wants to cut funding to offset the spending in that emergency aid package. And then you just talk about the policy over immigration where the two parties have been unable to find any accord on this intractable issue for decades, which is leading many to raise concerns about the inability of Congress to find a solution at this key moment as the White House warns the inability of Congress to pass this could lead to Ukraine being kneecapped at the worst possible time in its war against Russia, not to mention Israel aid falling by the wayside as well. Many concerns at the moment with no way out of this impasse at this key moment. Dana. All right. And again, just to remind our viewers, we are waiting for President Biden to speak any moment on this very issue that Manu was talking about, Priscilla as well. We said there's a lot of breaking news this hour. This now, Kevin McCarthy is resigning. The ousted speaker announced today that he will leave Congress by the end of this year. He did so in a Wall Street Journal op-ed. I want to get to Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill. Uh, Melanie, this is obviously big news because he is the former House speaker, but it also uh, is about the very, very narrow majority that the House Republicans already have. It will, at least for a short time, be even smaller. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is only going to complicate the GOP's already difficult math problem in the House. After they expelled George Santos last week, Republicans right now can only afford to lose three Republicans on any party line votes. That number is going to go down to two Republicans once Kevin McCarthy leads. And that is something that is not lost on members. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was a staunch ally of Kevin McCarthy, summed it up best when she said, I hope no one dies. A very succinct, grim reference to the idea that the House majority right now is so tenuous, especially when you have such a chaotic and rambunctious group of Republicans, the same Republicans that ultimately forced Kevin McCarthy out of this speakership last month or back in October, I should say. So a huge political and practical implications here with this decision. Now, it was highly anticipated and long expected. In fact, me and my colleague, Pam Brown reported in October that it was expected he was going to step down. McCarthy denied it at the time, said he was even going to seek re-election. Clearly, that is not the case. And he has found that adjusting from life as a speaker to a rank-and-file member has been difficult. There's been a lot of bad, bad blood in the conference since then. So it's unclear what Kevin McCarthy will do next. But he did offer some clues in this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. I want to read you part of what he wrote. He said, I have decided to part the House at the end of this year to serve America in new ways. I know my work is only getting started. I will continue to recruit our country's best and brightest to run for elected office. The Republican Party is expanding every day, and I am committed to lending my experience to support the next generation of leaders. And he also made clear he has no regrets including about that decision to put a stopgap funding bill on the floor with the support of Democrats, which ultimately led to his ouster. So we'll see what Kevin McCarthy decides to do next. But in the meantime, I'm told that House Republicans are planning to toast Kevin McCarthy at a party next week. This is something that was planned before his public announcement. Of course, Republicans weren't expecting him to retire. And they said they just wanted to thank him, according to sources involved in the planning. Dana. Grand old party, as they say. Thank you so much, Melanie. Appreciate it. And yes, there is a lot of breaking news. Right now, we have a brand new CNN poll about President Biden and his approval rating. It is not very good. It's actually a new low. I want to talk about this and more from our new poll with who else? David Chalian. What does it tell us? 
Well, as you noted, if you take a look at Biden's approval here, Dana, in our brand new CNN poll conducted by SSRS, he's at 37 percent approval, 63 percent disapproval as he's about to turn the corner into his reelection year. And look at this number over time. You noted it's a numeric low, but he's hang been hanging out down here uh, for some time. Look here. He starts going down after the Afghanistan withdrawal. That really took a hit in his numbers in 2021. There was this uptick here in his approval around the time of the 2022 midterms last year where Democrats performed better. But basically this entire year has been a downward slide now to this new numeric low of 37%. And how does this uh, kind of compare to uh, others who have served in the White House? Take a look at his modern era predecessors. This was their approval rating at this point in their presidency, mm. heading into their reelection year. And just note here, he's at the bottom of this list at 37%. Mm. Uh, take a look here, Dana, at these three that are at the bottom here. Mm. What do they all have in common? They didn't win their reelection race. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is a real warning sign uh, for for Joe Biden. And take a look here at some of the demographic groups. 72% approval among Democrats. If you're below 80% usually of your own party, that's a warning sign. 36% mm -hmm. approval among independents. Does not have majority approval among African Americans, nor does he with Latinos. 34% uh, approval among young voters. That's a big warning this sign. This is all, all of it, this but is particularly all a warning that sign for Joe Biden. Yeah. And the issue that everybody says that they are going to vote on. We'll see if that happens uh, because it wasn't maybe so much in the midterms, but it is a very important one. That, of course, is the economy. That's right. And we asked an open-ended question. What is the most important issue for Americans? And overwhelmingly, respondents in the poll say it's the economy. 42%, 12% say immigration, 10% foreign policy, partisanship and divisions in the country, 6%, 6% say guns and crime. So on issue number one of the economy, it's a pretty poor outlook from the American people. Only 29% assess current economic conditions as good. 71% good. say they are poor. I'll note that's a slight uptick from what we've seen before, but still, it's in the cellar in terms of uh, uh, positive uh, overall impressions of the economy. And his approval rating, the president's approval rating on the economy, Dana, is even worse than his overall approval rating. It's only at 33 percent, 67 percent disapproved. You are right. We saw on issues like abortion rights or voting rights and election integrity that is Democrats have an advantage on those issues. And they did turn out on those issues last year. So that is a good note. But I would just note on what voters say right now is the most important issue. He's got real trouble as well. And they're trying so hard with Bidenomics, spending a lot of money on it uh, to press the point that the economy is getting better and voters aren't buying it. It's like you have they're trying to tell people how to feel and it doesn't always work. Right. Right now in politics. our poll, we should see a 10 point advantage for Republicans on the issue of the economy. Can we put back the the sort of downward trend of sure. his this? I, I just want to underscore one thing that you said when you presented this, this right here, 52 percent when it started going down the withdrawal from Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and he never recovered. From never that. fully recovered. You see, he came back up a bit, but never to that never yeah. to that level with the midterms last year where the Democrats overperformed. But you're right. The, this was the real end of his honeymoon. And, and it's such a dichotomy between uh, what we're seeing right now, which is uh, he is getting some applause from Republicans even for how he's trying to handle uh, things on the world stage, both in Ukraine and on the Middle East. Speaking of both of those things, we're still waiting for uh, the president to speak at the White House about uh, the stalemate in Congress 
over money that the White House says, Ukraine says, is absolutely necessary for their fight against Russia. At next, we are going to talk about debate night. It is tonight what Republican candidates could try to prove their last time to face off before the end of the year. Of course, Donald Trump will not be there. Stay with us. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. Let's go now to Alabama, where hours from now, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Chris Christie will duke it out on the debate stage. Just 40 days left now until the Iowa caucuses, and candidates are desperate for a breakout moment. They want to try to chip away at Donald Trump's overwhelming lead. Donald Trump, of course, will not be on the debate stage. You know who's already in Alabama? Jeff Zeleny. Jeff, I know you've been talking to reporters, uh, excuse me, to voters. You are a reporter. Uh, trying to figure out what they're actually looking for from Republican candidates tonight. What are you hearing? Well, hey, Dana, even though this is the fourth Republican debate, there really have been some significant differences from the last debate. There have been some changes in the campaign, and that is what voters uh, who are just beginning to tune into this campaign are looking for. We always think that we are near the end of this process, but again, some voters are just beginning to take a closer look at some of the positions of the candidates and look for Nikki Haley to try and continue her momentum, which she's really built up debate by debate by debate. But Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in recent weeks has been questioning her conservative credentials. He's been calling her part of the liberal establishment. So look for that to be a bit of a new storyline tonight, if you will. And Chris Christie, of course, all of his hopes are uh, based in New Hampshire uh, with independent voters, with moderate voters. Of course, Donald Trump's words about a dictator, uh, that certainly is also likely to be front and center. But as we've spent time talking to voters, particularly the Iowa voters who will make their decisions in just 40 days, have a listen to what Ann Walford from Grinnell, Iowa said, where she's at right now. I'm looking at Nikki Haley and, of course, DeSantis and Vivek and Trump, if, <laughs> I mean, I will vote well because if he's the nominee, I will vote for him. But um, you know, we need we need uh, we need some different aspects to our country at this point, and where it's going now is not good. 
And that's the sentiment you really hear a lot from talking to voters. Uh, their minds are open to some degree for other candidates. So that is where the opportunity comes in for some of these hopefuls tonight. But Dana, once again, as in every other debate, uh, the person driving this race is not going to be here, at least on stage. But of course, his words and his presence will be looming incredibly large. Yeah, especially words that he has uttered in the last 24 hours. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much. I'll see you tonight in Alabama. Right. Uh, the four candidates Jeff was talking about who will be on the stage tonight are getting ready as we speak. Here's what Vivek Ramaswamy said about his prep, what he expects to do. My strategy in this race is I'd rather speak the truth and lose an election than to win by playing some carefully threaded snakes and ladders. I don't intend to play with kid gloves, and you shouldn't want people who prevented from running for U.S. president to sit across the table from Xi Jinping being trained to play with kid gloves either. Let's talk about this with the political panel we have here. All-stars, CNN Casey Hunt, PBS NewsHour's Laura Barone Lopez, and Leanne Caldwell of The Washington Post. Did you guys think that Vivek Ramaswamy had kid gloves on the last <laughs> couple of debates? That was interesting. Uh, I want to start with the uh, ad that Ron DeSantis has out right now going after Nikki Haley. And it's very interesting to me what the topic is that he chose. Nikki Haley admits. The reason I got into politics was because of Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is actually the reason. So Haley raised taxes like Hillary, backs open borders like Hillary, did favors for Chinese companies like Hillary. I mean, preview of tonight? Perhaps. I mean, I just, I honestly, I look at that and I see that it's easier to attack female candidates than uh, sometimes uh, it is to attack male candidates. Uh, there seems, I mean, otherwise, you know, drawing that distinction really takes the words that Haley was using when she was speaking, you know, about the ways in which uh, it is important for little girls to see women in positions of power, whatever their kind of beliefs are, um, and uses it against her. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we'll see. DeSantis has not been a terribly effective attack dog on the debate stage, I will say, at least not against Nikki Haley so far. I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy took more swipes at her um, in, the, in the previous debate, but I think she even got the better of him in that. I think that uh, when I look at that ad, I see that uh, Hillary Clinton has become this massive boogie woman on the right, uh, largely because of former President Donald Trump. And it's someone that DeSantis clearly sees as it could be an effective attack to tether Haley to uh, a former Secretary of State, uh, the leading candidate for Democrats uh, two cycles ago, who has been totally demonized on the right to the point where, you know, they chanted, lock her up the last few cycles. And that he thinks that it's easier to tie her to someone like that, uh, despite all the lies that were spread about Hillary Clinton in the 2016 cycle, because that's something that really gets the base going. Yeah, and I, you were alluding to this, but I think we should say it very clearly, which is, when Nikki Haley talks about Hillary Clinton, she's talking about being inspired by uh, the now secretary, former secretary, because she was telling women, get off the, the couch, get out of your chair, get, get out of your comfort zone, yeah. and go run for office no matter what yeah. your political persuasion is. Yeah, it was about that glass ceiling. Right. And that Hillary Clinton was close to breaking that glass ceiling. She put a lot of cracks in it. Right. She had many yeah. cracks in that glass <laughs> ceiling. Um, but what that ad also shows to me is that it, it screams desperation. 
Ron DeSantis is for so long tried to ignore the other candidates in the race that he was the clear second runner behind Donald Trump, but that's not the case anymore. And so instead of running ads against Donald Trump, he is focusing on, on Nikki Haley, who he is going head to head again against tonight. And Nikki, Nikki Haley has repeatedly outperformed Ron DeSantis at these debates. Okay, let's talk about uh, Donald Trump and the counter-programming that he started to do last night with the town hall on Fox. A lot of interesting moments, including this one. I often say Al Capone, he was one of the greatest of all time, if you like criminals. He was a mob boss, the likes of which Scarface, they call him. And he got indicted once. I got indicted four times. I got to know them all in there. At the top of their game, some are bad people, some are decent people. They all have one thing in common. They want what's good for their country, whether it's President Xi of China or Kim Jong-un. Again, he's continuing to praise dictators. And criminals. And criminals. <laughs> and, and when he was talking Al about Capone, Al Capone. <laughs> right. He was, he was got to pick a criminal. You might as well pick that Al Capone. One. Yeah, and, uh, and praising dictators and also, you know, said that he would be a dictator on day one and then not after day one. Uh, but I think that, look, Trump is saying all this stuff out loud and has been for a very long time. Features of his, his campaign are that he tries to normalize violence and speaking in a violent way about his political enemies. He says that he would go after his political enemies and that his entire campaign is about retribution for attacks on him, for the fact that he still says that 2020 was stolen, that uh, he's already forecasting that if he loses, 2024 will then have been stolen. So uh, he is very much all the historians that I've talked to, and I think more and more reporters are diagnosing this as well, adopting authoritarian language, and is forecasting that he would totally overhaul, if not dismantle, democracy. And, and, go ahead. I was just going to say, Sean Hannity, in that extended version of that exchange, was basically trying to yeah. get him to say, yeah. no, I will not be a dictator. He was basically, oh, well, you, you know, you're not going to, this isn't going to be about, be about revenge, right? And Trump's like, well, actually. He's the friendliest of forums. Um, right. I mean, and, but you could see that clearly Hannity realizes it's in um, the interest of the, pres of the former president to say, no, I'm not going to do that, to not inflame the situation. And instead, here is Trump saying what, you know, I mean, it, it would be a mistake to not believe that Trump is going to, to, to not believe Trump when he says he is going to do something. And we should also note that we don't have time to run the soundbite, but Cash Patel, who yeah. is one of his advisors, who could be, if, he, if Trump wins, a very senior person in the Trump administration, is saying explicitly that they will go and find conspirators, and not just in government, but also in the media. Yeah, um, and that's one thing that is much different this time around with Trump's uh, quest to the White House is he has an infrastructure around him and people around him who are all in on this vision. Um, no longer do you have people around him who are trying to push back on the idea that perhaps dismantling the Constitution is not the best idea. Okay. On that note, let's be sure to uh, talk about tonight. We are going to have a very interesting discussion after tonight's debate. We're going to give critical context and analysis what you need to see and hear. Anderson Cooper and I will be hosting the post-debate discussion live at 10 o'clock Eastern right here on CNN. 
Ahead, CNN's John King continues his all over the map series. This time he went to Las Vegas and talked to Latino voters who say 2024 is still up in the air. So we're in Vegas. Would you put your money on Trump Biden or we're going to be surprised? I think we're going to be surprised. I think we'll be surprised. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are waiting for President Biden to speak any minute. That is a shot of his podium in the Roosevelt Room of the White House. We, of course, expect him to come and try to put some pressure on Congress. Congress is at a stalemate over what he calls essential, essential funding for Ukraine. Priscilla Alvarez is at the White House. And as we wait for the president, Priscilla, what are you hearing about the specifics of what he's going to say? Well, Dana, he's expected to take an urgent tone in pushing for this supplemental request and making the plea that he has made from the beginning that this is not just about assisting Israel and Ukraine, but also is imperative for national security of the U.S. And he is likely, too, to make the warning that his officials have made over the course of the last few days, the Office of Management and Budget, saying that without congressional action, quote, we will run out of resources to procure more weapons and equipment for Ukraine and provide equipment for U.S military stock. So we're likely to see an extension of that in the president's remarks, which are expected momentarily. And just to remind viewers, the president has repeatedly come out to push for this supplemental request, which is a hundred of $105 billion in total, breaking it down. It's $61 billion for Ukraine and $14 billion for Israel. But he made a call to the nation in October when this was first introduced. He's also gone to the pages of the Washington Post. So this is a priority for the president and this White House as they try to show on the national stage, but also on the global stage, that they are continuing to back Ukraine and Israel. This is important for democracy. It's important for these conflicts. And above all else, it is important for the national security of the U.S. So we expect to hear all of that from the president in what is expected to be brief remarks and potentially also getting questions from reporters. Some of that may also include uh, what happens with border security. This is something that Republicans have pressed Democrats on. They will not pass, they say, anything unless there's robust policy changes. Where the White House stands on that has been unclear. They have said from the podium that they will not negotiate in public. But clearly, this is a delicate issue and one that is uh, that Republicans are calling for changes on as they also uh, try to get as the White House tries to get the supplemental through. Right. Thank you so much, Priscilla. And again, as we wait uh, for President Biden to speak, it could happen any second. John King is here. John, you came to talk about your your story about Latino voters, your travels to Nevada. But we're going to take it. We're going to take advantage of uh, of you uh, being here and and the travels that you've done and talking to voters as it relates to Ukraine. It's really amazing to see the shift in sentiment among, let's just start with Republicans, Republican leaders, and that is coming from the shift in sentiment among Republican voters when it comes to spending U.S. taxpayer dollars 
to support Ukraine. And don't forget the Democratic piece of this. The president, look, you started the show with David Chalian and the president's low poll standing right now. All of this is connected. He has a very weak hand to deal with. When he wants to push Ukraine funding, he looks to his right and Republicans are saying, why? We don't see the reasons to do this. Why are we protecting their borders when we can't protect our own? It's a legitimate question, right? The president has to make the case for democracy and he has to try to reach an agreement with the Republicans on border security here. Then he looks to his left in his own party, not just here in Washington, out on the trail, especially young voters, don't want him to give any more money to Israel right now. They are mad at Israel. They think Israel is somehow the bad actor against Hamas, even though Hamas attacked a terrorist strike on Israel. So the president can look left and right, whether it's in Washington, at the Congress, or out in the country, and he has a problem right now. And he's trying to solve it. He's trying to be the commander in chief. This is a presidential moment, not necessarily a political moment, but he has a weak hand. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that David uh, Chalian came on at the beginning of the program with uh, new polling. And one of the things that has fascinated me, if you look at the trajectory of Biden approval numbers, we can put it up on the screen, uh, I should say the decline. That 52 percent right there, his high watermark, the, the downward slide came after Afghanistan. And uh, so at that point, people were so a lot of people were really disgusted with the way the United States left Afghanistan. They didn't want to be there, but they didn't like the way that the U.S. left. And now you have him pleading for help from U.S. taxpayers uh, for very different uh, places on the globe, but all about one core question, which is democracy. His calling card as commander-in-chief, his calling card as president across the board was, I will end the chaos of Donald Trump. People looked at Afghanistan and they saw chaos. They said, we didn't get what we bought. And that also happened right when inflation was spiking or not, soon, not right after. So if you go out in the country, number one, they think, you know, because the president, part of this is because he keeps a light schedule. His team bristles at the suggestion. But the American people do not hear him every day, whether it's on inflation, whether it's on Ukraine, whether it's on these issues. So he's coming, he keeps coming into these fights, making these statements at moment of crisis, as opposed to building up support over time in traveling the country. Make your, go make your case about democracy. Uh, it, it is striking in the sense that you, you look at that low approval rating. I was just in Vegas. 30% unemployment at the peak of COVID. That is a body blow that's hard to recover from. Most of the jobs are back, but people don't believe it. They can see it if you look around, but they don't feel it in their bones. Uh, and David was going through, you know, he's in Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump territory. Those were one-term presidents because people do not perceive that he's vibrant and he's vigorous at the moment. And these are tough issues. We're going to try to take a chance and play for our viewers the story that you did out of Nevada. Take a listen. Lunchtime in Vegas, and Antonio Munoz is happy to lay out the choices. More cautious, though, about a past choice. What about 2020? Biden, Trump. 2020? Um, I'll stay away from that today. You don't want to talk about that? No. Why? Why? Because the nature, the nature of, uh, of society right now. You know, we're a small business, and uh, they will attack you. They'll attack you just because you support a certain candidate. Um, and it's sad. Munoz started the 911 taco bar after a decade in the Air Force and 16 years as a Vegas police officer. This was a dream of mine through the military, uh, owning my own business. Uh, I've always had a love for food and tacos. So I thought I could bring something special to the community. Hispanics were a small slice of Nevada's population when Munoz was a boy who admired Ronald Reagan more than 30% now. It's amazing the political power that Hispanics are creating here in the state of Nevada. This is a state that's gone Democrat in the last several presidential elections, but if you look at it today, 
It's right there. 50-50. Valeria Gurr is one reason why. Our vote has been taken for granted. A former Democrat who worked for the teachers' union. How'd you do today? Good. Now a Republican with one defining issue. Your son is how old? He's six. And you won't send him to the public schools? I won't. Why? Because I, I work with Hispanic families for 15 years here, and I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand how, you know, teachers have classrooms that are overcrowded. They can barely get to them. I will vote for the candidate that support my views on a school choice. In 2020, that was Donald Trump with reservations. I will never condone racist comments towards my community, if that's the question. Now, Gurr hopes the GOP makes a new choice. I like uh, Ron DeSantis simply because what he has done in Florida. I personally would love to see Nikki Haley to have another mom in the White House as a poor school choice. Inflation and interest rates worries Oila Sanchez. She's been selling homes in Las Vegas and its suburbs for 26 years. Her voting history tracks Nevada's shift blue, Democrat in the past four presidential elections. But Sanchez is still a registered Republican. Her first and second votes for president went to George W. Bush. Sanchez liked the idea of lower taxes mixed with compassionate talk about immigrants. Does that Republican Party exist anymore? It does not exist anymore. Would you like it to? I would love it to come back. Would, yeah, would that's you, me. Would you like Count Sanchez as another Haley fan? Because I think she could bring back that real Republican uh, feeling, the conservative, it, everything that it used to be. So if it's Trump-Biden, you're for Biden. Mm -hmm. If it were Haley-Biden... I would vote for Kaylee. Never Trump for Sanchez, but she says some friends who voted Biden in 2020 talk of giving Trump a second chance. Some of them say, because look at what's happening to the economy. There's no way. And what do you say to them? I say, don't. Don't. He's going to make things worse. The Strip has changed a ton since Carlos Padilla started as a Treasure Island pastry chef 30 years ago. To be in a job that long and actually still love it, it's, it's awesome. Padilla is a loyal Democrat, volunteers every election as a culinary union foot soldier, and knows even a modest Latino shift could tip Nevada Republican in 2024. I think we can, uh, we have a good chance of stopping that. Padilla hears complaints Biden is too old, or nostalgia for the pre-COVID Trump economy. He tries to reframe the conversation. Do you want somebody that's going to be for the working class people, or do you want somebody that possibly not for the working class people? As we get closer and... Uh, People start getting more information and correct information. I think it'll be a lot different. Change is a constant here. So in early debates with friends, including two sons split between Biden and Trump, Antonio Munoz says, do your homework and keep an open mind. People are confused. You know, I'm not, there's no perfect candidate out there. So we're in Vegas. Would you put your money on Trump Biden or we're going to be surprised? I think we're going to be surprised. I think we'll be surprised. Early odds, of course, suggest otherwise. It's always so interesting to hear from voters. I was in Nevada right before the midterms in 2022, and the feeling was, I don't know, this could go for the Republican because of the Latinos being, a lot of the Latino voters being upset about Joe Biden and the economy. And that's not what happened, but that was in a specific Senate race. Maybe this time is different. Republicans did win the governor's office. They beat right. a Democratic incumbent there. So sort of a split decision in the midterms, which is why 2024 is so urgent. So I talked about the COVID hangover. You have it on the economy. Even though many of the jobs are back, people, 30% unemployment, again, it leaves a bruise. But you heard that Latino mom. Now, she's an activist now, so some people will discount her. But we've heard the same thing from lower income moms in Milwaukee. 
people who send their children to public schools, their kids are behind because of COVID. And they don't see this town, many of them don't see their governors doing anything about it. They worry about their kids and they don't see any help. And the fact that you talked to that one particular woman who is all Biden, unless Nikki Haley is the Republican. Did you hear that? Oh, there's, a, there's a lot More of that. Remember, once? George W. Bush got 40-something percent among Latinos because he was the compassionate conservative. Yes, lower taxes, less regulation, uh, conservative support abortion God, rights. forgive me. Here's the president. Good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> I'd like to speak to you today about an urgent responsibility the Congress has to uphold the national security needs of the United States and, quite frankly, of our partners as well. <clears throat> this cannot wait. Congress needs to pass supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break for the holiday resources. Simple as that. Frankly, I think it's stunning that we've gotten to this point in the first place. While Congress, Republicans in Congress are willing to give Putin the greatest gift he could hope for and abandon our global leadership, <clears throat> not just in Ukraine, but beyond that. We've all seen the brutality that Putin has inflicted on Ukraine, invading another country, trying to subjugate his neighbors to his iron rule, committing atrocities, atrocities against Ukrainian civilians, trying to plunge them into the cold and darkness of winter by bombing their electrical grids so they don't have any heat during the winter, <clears throat> or electricity for that matter, kidnapping thousands of Ukraine, thousands of Ukrainian children from their parents and families and keeping them in Russia. Russian forces are committing war crimes. It's as simple as that. It's stunning. Who is prepared to walk away from holding Putin accountable for this behavior? Who among us is really prepared to do that? You know, for the better part of two years, the brave people of Ukraine have denied Russia a victory on the battlefield. They've defeated Vladimir Putin's ambition to dominate Ukraine. And the people of the United States can and should take pride, they should take pride, that we've enabled Ukraine's success <clears throat> thanks to the steady supply of weapons and ammunition. We provided them together with our partners and our allies. I just did a meeting with the G7, which was one of the issues we discussed. All of the European leaders, we are prepared to stay with us, stay with Ukraine, <clears throat> and our European friends are as well. Who in the United States is prepared to walk away from that? I tell you, I'm not prepared to walk away. And I don't think the American people are either. If Putin takes Ukraine, he won't stop there. It's important to see the long run here. He's going to keep going. He's made that pretty clear. If Putin attacks a NATO ally, if he keeps going, and then he attacks a NATO ally, where well, we've committed as a NATO member that we defend every inch of NATO territory, then we'll have something that we don't seek and that we don't have today. American troops fighting Russian troops. American troops fighting Russian troops if he moves into other parts of NATO. Make no mistake, today's vote's going to be long remembered. And history's going to judge harshly those who turn their back on freedom's cause. We can't let Putin win. Say it again, we can't let Putin win. It's in our overwhelming national interest and the international interest of all our friends. Any disruption in our ability to supply Ukraine clearly strengthens Putin's position. We've run out of money to be able to do that in terms of authorization. Extreme Republicans are playing chicken with our national security, holding Ukraine's funding hostage to their extreme partisan border policies. Let me be clear. 
We need real solutions. I support real solutions at the border. I put forward a comprehensive plan the first day I came into office. I made it clear that we need Congress to make changes to fix what is a broken immigration system, because we know, we all know it's broken. And I'm willing to do significantly more. But in terms of changes of policy and to provide resources that we need at the border, I'm ready to change policy as well. I've asked for billions of dollars for more border agents, more immigration judges, more asylum officers. Republicans have to decide if they want a political issue, if they want a solution at the border. Do they really want a solution? It cannot be sustained as it is now. We need a real solution. And my team has been engaged in negotiations with Senate, with Senate Democrats and Republicans on border security. Democrats. Democrats have put forward a bipartisan compromise on the table. Leader Schumer and Senate Democrats also have offered to let Republicans propose amendments to that border proposal. But Republicans have objected and said, no, we, we, we don't want you to even introduce your proposal because then we're not going to, And even though the Democrats say you can amend it any way you want. No, no, we don't want to do that. This has to be a negotiation. Republicans think they get everything they want without any bipartisan compromise. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. And now they're willing to literally kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield and damage our national security in the process. Look, I know we have our divisions at home. Let's get past them. This is critical. Petty, partisan, angry politics can't get in the way of our responsibility as a leading nation in the world. And literally, the entire world is watching. The entire world is watching. What will the United States do? And think if we don't support Ukraine, what's the rest of the world going to do? What's Japan going to do which is supporting Ukraine now? What's going to happen in terms of the G7? What's going to happen in terms of our NATO allies? What are they going to do? If we walk away now, <clears throat> we'll only embolden other would-be aggressors. <clears throat> so I'm calling on Congress to do something and do the right thing, to stand with the people of Ukraine, stand against the tyranny of Putin, stand for freedom, literally stand for freedom. Let's get this done. We're the reason Putin has not totally overrun Ukraine and moved beyond that. And you all heard me talk about it before. If, in fact, we walk away, how many of our European friends are going to continue to fund? And at what rates are they going to continue to fund it? This is too serious. Like I said, I am willing to make significant compromises on the border. We need to fix the broken border system. It is broken. And thus far, I've gotten no response. So I just, uh, we're going to be a vote a little bit later today. We'll know where we go from there. But I wanted to make this comment before the vote. And I'm sure I'll be talking with you after the vote. Thank you very much for listening. Appreciate it. Mr. President, given the current impasse, would you be okay with Democrats willing to uh, put more on border policy to get this current package through? Yes. What would I, you be okay with Democrats agreeing to? I've already laid out in our negotiations with Lankford and others what we're willing to do significantly more, particularly by starting off equipping the border capacity that we need on the border from judges to more border security, in addition to making some substantive changes. 
but they're unwilling to do it. We thought we, I, I really thought, <clears throat> I felt good for a while. I thought we were making some real progress. Langford's a decent guy. It looked like he was prepared to move in a way, in a direction that we could come up with a compromise, both changing in substance, changing policy on the border, as well as security at the border. But they've walked away. It's take everything we have here on their one proposal, which is extreme, or nothing. In the meantime, the nothing means we don't get any support for our friends and our the innocent people of Ukraine. Anyway, I'll President talk to you more after the and also China. President Biden on Ukraine and also China. Uh, there is polling by the Associated Press that shows that almost 70 percent of Americans, including 40 percent of Democrats, believe that you acted either illegally or unethically in regards to your family's business interests. Can you explain to the Americans, uh, to Americans admit this impeachment inquiry, why you interacted with so many of your son and brother's foreign business associates? I'm not going to comment that I did not. And it's just a bunch of lies. You didn't interact with many of their lies. business associates? I did not. They're what? lies. Do you think there is any Democrat who could defeat Donald Trump other than you? A very... You do believe that there are... I'm not the only one to read it, but I will defeat him. Who else do you think could defeat Donald Trump as the president? Wow, a lot more to unpack there than we thought. Let's just start on the message that the president was giving extremely forcefully uh, using dire, urgent language, saying that if the United States does not give more money uh, to the Ukraine war effort, Putin is going to get a, a gift. If Putin takes Ukraine, he won't stop there. Uh, he will go after NATO. He's urged uh, the members of Congress to take the long run here. He said history will judge uh, and much, much more. John King, uh, what do you make of, of that? And will it have any impact? And I should also note, important note, that the reason why this is being held up is Republicans want to include pretty significant immigration policy, not just funding for the border, but policy changes along with it. And they haven't been able to reach agreement on that. Look, you know, if you just read the transcript, right, everybody out there, most people out there watch this through their partisan lens. Uh, that was an incredibly strong moral argument for defending and standing with Ukraine at this moment. The president is also right on the facts that if the United States walks away, either cuts funding completely or significantly reduces funding, the European governments will be under all sorts of pressure. And other governments around the world that have joined helping the NATO allies in other ways will be under all kinds of pressure to reduce it as well. Uh, so. The question is, you know, Mitch McConnell is the big player here. He agrees with the president 100 percent about supporting Ukraine, but he wants something. He wants more on the border. He has to deal with his own conservatives in the Senate. And he also knows in the Wild West that is the House of Representatives right now, if you want Republican votes, you've got to give more on the border. So the, the, the question is, can the president take that moral argument and then get in a room and negotiate on the border in ways that, again, he didn't even mention Israel. Israel is part of it. Money for Israel is part of this package. Well, will he give the Republicans so much on the border that he creates a political problem for himself on the left? That's the president's dilemma. How does he negotiate this? Before we go, I want to uh, get your views on what I think it was MJ asking the question. It sounded like it before he went out the door 
about comments that the president made last night at a fundraiser that the only reason he's running for a second term is because Trump is running on the other side. He said that at the fund, fundraiser. Then he came back to the White House and he was asked, you know, is it too, he said, not now. He's not going to get out now. People took that as timing. It's too late to get out there. He, she asked him, are you the only one who could beat Trump? He said, no, he doesn't think he's the only one who could beat Trump. But then he said, but I will beat Trump. So he's not going anywhere. Just back quickly to, to immigration. You mentioned border security and border funding, and he said that that's something that he is okay with. But it is pretty significant change in policy that they're trying to do really quickly after there's been a stalemate for like 15 years on this or more. Twice that, yeah. Yeah. And so, but he said that he wants, that he is willing to give. We don't know how much he has said, but that really is where things stand right now. And it is all connected. And he mentioned Senator Lankford of Oklahoma, a conservative, said he was a good guy, said he was a reasonable guy. I don't know the exact words he said. You know, the president knows him from the thing. But there are other Republicans more conservative than Jim Lankford. Lankford's conservative. There's Tom Cotton and others who want even more than he does. Okay. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And thank you for watching Inside Politics today. CNN News Central starts after a quick break. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.